Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Anthony Dworkin. I'm a senior policy fellow here at ECFR. And today I'm standing in for this podcast's normal host, Mark Leonard, who's in Stanford, California, finding out about the technology of the future. We're delighted this week to bring you a special and highly topical interview with the French scholar Gilles Capel, a professor at Sciences Po in Paris and one of Europe's leading academic experts on jihadist terrorism and radicalization. Professor Capel's recent book, Terror in France, The Rise of Jihad in the West, has just been published in English. And before that, he was the author of a string of highly influential works on Islamism and religious extremism in both the Middle East and Europe. This week, of course, we've seen the latest instance of jihadist terrorism in Europe with the terrible attack on a concert hall in Manchester, apparently carried out by a young man of Libyan descent that killed over 20 people and wounded dozens more. So let's start our conversation with that attack. Obviously, we're still learning about the man who carried it out and the network that may lie behind him. But from what we know so far, how would you place this incident in relation to the wave of terrorism that you've described in your book? Good morning, Anthony. Uh, well, there is some sort of uh, macabre topicality. Uh, uh, well, this book is now published in English, and there is this terrible Manchester incident, and that reminds me of you know when the book was published in French in December 2015. It was just right after the 13th of November attack in Paris, and there are definitely parallels, because the attack on the Bataclan musical, which uh, led to 130 dead in one day, including the shootouts outside World Paris, Paris cafes and the failed, fortunately, attack, foiled attack at the Stade de France, which might have killed thousands had it succeeded, uh, and had the explosive vest exploded, because fortunately it was not very well prepared and it did not, they did not explode. There are definitely similarities. Uh, because it's, uh, it targets the youth, it targets uh, concerts, it targets music. It's uh, in the in the, the way the, Isla, the the jihadists think. It is uh, those concerts are perceived as a sort of um, decadent uh, expression of hedonism, and it has to be published. The, these are the the, the ways of uh, of life of the of the uh, of a society that they they despise because uh, it has no morals, it has lost the sort of religi religious code, so it is something which is, you know, it, it, it's a target which is not chosen just by chance. But the difference with the Bataclan attack is that this was a single man who performed it, even though, uh, from what we know, as of now, uh, British police is looking for a support group, a network, the family, whether it be in Libya or in Manchester, whatever, Nevertheless, he acted alone, and uh, that reminds it of other incidents, such as the Nice attack on uh, Bastille Day um, uh, 2016, which uh, led to 86 people who died, uh, including, and this has to be underlined, uh, 30 uh, people from Muslim descent, and also the Breitscheidsplatz attack in Berlin on the 19th of December, where another truck hit the crowd in similar circumstances. And this, in order to to strike the um, the public, uh, you know, the the truck, the lorry in uh, in uh, in Nice was white, 
and the one in Berlin was black, and these are the two colors of the Islamic State, you know, and they, because they're, the war on media is perceived as a quintessential element in their all-out war against the West, right? Now, um, why why is it that this was a single man attack and not a group attack, as is the case, as was the case in the Bataclan? Well, uh, because I believe that the military situation uh, in, the, in the caliphate has changed over the months. Now, the so-called uh, ISIS or caliphate territory is is under. Uh, pressure, there are um, military uh, bombings, there are dronings, the border with Turkey is more or less sealed now, no one goes into the caliphate, no one goes out, and people are either trying to save their neck or to fight on the ground against the Iraqi or Kurdish forces. Therefore, uh, this sort of modus operandi that consisted in having, you know, foreign fighters leaving from Europe, getting training there or an uh, added brainwash there, and coming back through Mullenbeck or through Belgium. This cannot function anymore because of the circumstances in the caliphate, and therefore uh, the model which has taken, the, the, sort of the, the, the present modus operandi is more some, someone who's uh, somewhere who knows, who's a grassroots person, who knows his turf, and who will find whether on his own or whether it's you know his uh, he's told where to go a target which is close by and uh, this sort of vicinity thing and uh, in in the book in Tarrant France I I try to trace that to uh, you know this um, manifesto that was posted online in 2005 by Abu Musab al-Suri the the, the the Syrian engineer who was partially trained as an engineer in France, then man- married a Spanish woman, and finally was a resident of London, or what we call Londonistan, in the, the, in the late 1990s, and uh, who makes it explicit that, you know, as opposed to the top-down model of Osama bin Laden, who sent people who had been trained uh, in some somewhere in Afghanistan to America, and, you know, send them in the air, Saudis and whoever, but they had no... No, uh, no grassroots relation to to the Middle East. On the contrary, uh, Abu Musab al-Suri targeted Europe as the soft underbelly of the West, mm-hmm. and thought that he would found his find his soldiers on, of the Caliphate, quote unquote, mm-hmm. within the millions of young uh, Muslims living in the West, because he thought that they were many of them were disenfranchised, uh, had no no jobs, and so on and so forth, and because of the spread of Salafism. Uh, many of them are getting sort of culturally alienated from Western values and culture. So this is the general context in which I would put it. And then maybe a little later we can try to wonder why France, that was so much the target, we had 239 people who died between the uh, Charlie Hebdo attack in January 2015 and the stabbing of Father Jacques Amel, uh, the priest, the Catholic priest in Normandy, in his church on the 26th of July, 2016. There were no attacks in France, but one only, but which not which not entirely related to jihadi actions over the last eight months. Hence, the French presidential election could not be taken hostage, which has probably changed the results. Whereas attacks took place now in Germany mm. and in Britain. And in Britain, as we saw, they managed to uh, halt 
the campaign for the parliamentary elections. Right. Well, now that you mentioned that, let's look at that a little bit before we go back to the broader questions about the background to these attacks. Do you think this um, decline of attacks in Paris does represent a kind of increasing sophistication of French counterintelligence? Or is there something else going on, maybe a, a shift towards other countries or just the natural ebb and flow of uh, terrorists' choice of targets? Well, I believe uh, th there, there has been uh, an increased sophistication of French intelligence because, you know, the country was exposed to that threat to such a magnitude and therefore an enormous amount of means uh, was uh, was mobilized in order to to check it and um, it reminded me of you know what happened earlier on in the 1990s because at the time uh, the Algerian jihad uh, sort of uh, went into France, you know, we had the Khaled Kalkal attack in 1995, and at the time we had eight people who died, to compare with the 239 today. Mm -hmm. Then uh, the, the police was on the watch out, and uh, this sort of, you know, the intelligence agencies were in their culture, if you wish, in their way of thinking, in their Weltanschauung, could understand uh, ben Laden rather well because it looked like a secret service. It was a top-down phenomenon. Mm. And therefore, uh, the French, to a large extent, were able to eavesdrop on the mosques that they knew and to interrupt the sort of communication. And, uh, and so, even though France is the country with the biggest Muslim population in, in uh, Western Europe, not that I mean that Muslims are necessarily terrorists, but this was of course, what the, the jihadists thought was their, was their pond, their fishing pond, if you want. Mm. We had no attack uh, between 1995 and 2012. There's 16 years without mm. as, uh, any attack, whereas, you know, um, during the, 2011, the 2001 period, right, mm. while um, Spain was attacked on March 2004, London, of course, in uh, July of 2005, the Netherlands with the stabbing of Theo van Gogh and so on and so forth. So, as if, you know, the centralized French state, after it had failed like all intelligence agencies to come to terms or to understand the sort of cultural revolution of this network-based third-generation jihad, which I document very precisely in the book after 2005, because, you know, the, the, the intelligence agencies could not believe that a network-based terrorist phenomenon could function. And I remember I was at the Foreign Office one day, I think 2007 or something like that, when discussed this Abu Musab al-Suri network way bottom-up phenomenon, and one guy with a Scottish accent I could not imitate definitely, mm -hmm. uh, said, it does not work. It will not work. It worked. Right. And that's, that's precisely what we've seen then in the period since 2012. Exactly. First in France and then, I guess, spreading out through Europe. It's precisely the shift to a rather different model of, of jihadist. Exactly. Terrorism. And the first thing, you know, uh, there was the, this book by Suri that was uh, posted in 2005, and uh, I give it a, a, a sort of, of cardinal importance in, the, in, the, in my analysis. Many people uh, debated that and said, no one reads Suri. No one you know, even knows. I mean, the guy in, in Manchester probably had never heard of him. But, you know, uh, my answer is the following, it does not matter. We're in the, in the digital age, no one reads book anymore except mm -hmm. academics, but this is our job to trace the ideas to some source. 
But, you know, uh, how do they get their information and how are they brainwashed, if you wish? Because uh, this is, you know, minced in tweets, in uh, f Facebook postings or what have you. And it does not matter if you do not know the source. In this digital culture, the important issue is that your uh, something is forwarded to you by someone who's part of your Facebook friends or or, or, or uh, the ISIS friends, which is uh, happens to be the same, right? Mm -hmm. And so, whether or not people are conscious that it traces back to Suri or anything else is not, is not important. But what was I think of essence was that. Uh, three weeks after Suri's books was uh, was posted, then something extremely important happened in California on the 14th of February 2005. Well, Valentine's Day, of course, but also the fact that YouTube got its license this very day. And this is where Mark Leonard, what Mark Leonard is now investigating in Stanford, no doubt. And uh, because, you know, the two merged and, uh, you know, the new ideas bottom-up terrorism, jihadism, Europe as the soft underbelly and the main target, and the fact that you had the material uh, pedestal, if I may say so for that, with the network-based um, system and civilization. Because, you know, 9-11 was pre-digital. 9-11 was an event of magnitude that you had to, that had to, you, you know, which was molded in the, in the Hollywood narrative language, it was the Towers of Inferno model, if you want. Mm. It had to strike the imagination of people who were TV watchers. Mm. Now you don't need that. You just capture, find a hostage, behead him, film that, put it online, and you know you have your own uh, sort of cottage industry, if I may say so, of, of jihadism, which is a way to reach out to, uh, to those people. Right. And, and that, I guess, leads on precisely to what you document in your book, which is this sort of mass radicalization within Western society, rather than, as it were, you know, a few highly trained people who are sent in. We see this attempt to reach out and, you know, create a, a new um, wave of, of jihadists from within Western societies. And that's the, precisely the change that you trace. Exactly. And, uh, but, you know, from their own point of view, it has assets and liabilities. Assets because, you know, they go under the radar of, of the intelligence community. And even though this, I think, is changing now, uh, along, among other things, because, you know, uh, the, um, the methods of, uh, you know, to deal with the in encryption issues, thanks to what uh, Mark is investigating mm -hmm. in California again, the Palantir people and the Google people and all the others, you know, have made significant progress. And uh, one day or another, uh, most of those uh, codes will be understood, and some are already. But then we face another issue, which is the civil liberties things. That is to say that, you know, there's a big brother sometime uh, who's going to be able to uh, fumble in your, uh, in your telephone. Mm -hmm. uh, if he's a benevolent big brother, you may think it's okay, but, you know, a number of big brothers are not that benevolent, and some of them in Russia, China, and other nice places are interested in it. So this is another issue. But the, the technical dimension, I, I, I believe that Mark will tell us again, uh, should be dealt with. But then there's an ethical issue. But now, so that's, that's the, uh, uh, from their, their point of view, that's the, the asset thing, that, you know, they're under the radar, so they could, uh, you know, be uh, everywhere. And uh, 
But the liability, from their own point of view also, is that those people are not very well trained. Therefore, there's a lot less to uh, chance, right? The, it, say, in, on the 13th of November, they were lucky to some extent. In Manchester, from a sort of criminal point of view, he was lucky because he killed all those uh, people. But yeah, then who did he kill? He killed uh, very young uh, teenagers, people who were, uh, you know, the, uh, the constituency of this American singer who, who targets um, uh, teenagers. And um, this, of course, is not great for the mobilization of the masses because, uh, you know, um, ter terrorism and jihadi terrorism is, uh, doesn't follow the same line is not uh, only about killing people because killing people is not that difficult it's the it's the step after which which matters that is how to translate this killing and the attacks into mobilizations mobilization of the group you want to recruit right and uh, the, the the attacks have have a twofold target a to terrify the enemy and um, this is what in, in Arabic is called Irhab. Uh, and uh, the, um, there is a line in the a verse in the Quran that justifies the fact that, and which is used by Muslim brothers, by Sheikh Qardawi, by all those, all those people who say, you know, this is Irhab Mashru'a. That is to say, it is uh, sacrosanct terrorism. It is rightful to terrify your enemy because this is part of psychological warfare, if you want, right? But by the same token, uh, you have to uh, to tell your people or the ones you want to mobilize, but you know the others are, are terrible; they are weak, and that you have to gather under the Prophet's banner. To quote from uh, Ayman Azawahiri's famous manifesto, which was the Jihad Phase Two before the present third phase of Abu Musa al-Suri and his followers. But this is complicated because. If you target uh, people who are, you know, easy to, to kill, like those uh, unfortunate uh, young listeners, so uh, there, there are many people dead, and you think, you know, the, sympath the, the, the hardcore sympathizers will be glad. But, you know, the gray zone of people you would mobilize will be shocked. I mean, the, it will not be as efficient as if they had targeted, for instance, uh, 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 an army barracks or something like that, which is clearly what did a young uh, girl of eight mm. years um, do in, against or uh, against mm. Islam or against what have you? So it's it's difficult to capitalize on that, and and also uh, they make a number of blunders. Like in France, for instance, Rashid Qasim, who was the in the caliphate, who was the who sort of coordinated most of the attacks in 2016 and. Uh, who sentenced uh, yours truly uh, to death three times already, and who fin finally was drawn by an American drone, so Indeed. another thing that Mark is investigating, uh, is, uh, you know, tried his luck on September 4th in sending female commandos because he wanted to shame the men that they had not, you know, attacked the, the, the infidels, the kuffar, enough and soaked their country in blood. And... Uh, the problem that was that they were very, very badly trained. So um, instead of inflaming um, uh, a blanket soaked with uh, petrol, 
to uh, detonate canisters of gas near Notre Dame, mm. they tried to to um, uh, to set ablaze a blanket that was soaked in diesel. So diesel, which is usually has such a bad reputation in Europe, saved France for that purpose. And this was also they were they were arrested, and the and also you know there were, there were photographs of the female jihadist arrested by infidel cops, mm. and this led to a. Uh, a, a very violent reaction among the hardcore Salafists in the Islamic State because he accused the Rashid Qasim of exposing the modesty mm -hmm. of sisters to the Kuffar. So, you know, this is a more complicated thing than they believe. Yeah. Just to, to take a step back, um, clearly one of the most central questions um, is to do with the process of radicalization, as it's often referred to, the process by which um, the kinds of individuals that you look at in your book, you know, often um, in some cases not particularly strong believers, in some cases even converts, um, some with a criminal background, um, move from that position to the position of being willing to die um, in the cause of jihad. And traditionally, you know, there's some, sometimes been uh, something of a debate between those who emphasize the role of the kind of political or social frustrations as opposed to the role of ideology. But I suppose it's, it must be some interplay of both. But how would you, with the experience that you look at in this book, how would you characterize that relationship? Well, a, a good way to look at it is to investigate what happened in jails. And uh, French prisons, I mean, in other prisons in the world, but, you know, I investigated French prisons in depth with my, my students, uh, were the key incubator for this phenomenon, this transition phenomenon that you just underlined. And like, for instance, uh, shortly after 9-11, uh, a French guy from Algerian descent called Jamel Behal was arrested on his way to blowing up the American embassy in Paris. He was jailed in Fleury-Mérogis, which is the main biggest prison in Europe, south of Paris, in the um, you know in, in the solitary, solitary confinement wing. But, uh, you know, uh, this was on the fourth floor at Fleury-Mérogis, and I know the prison because I went there, you know, to lecture many times. Some of my colleagues would like me to stay there forever, but I've, I've, I've been able to get out. And, uh, and what I noticed there was that, you know, the guys could easily proselytize through the windows. And because when I came, uh, the, the guys told me, oh, but you're very famous in the prison already. I said, why is that? And because, because the guys on the fourth floor, the, the Harlan criminals whom I was talking to, had told the others through the windows that I was coming. So they were waiting for, you know, the, the reports. And, um, and who was jailed under uh, Behal? Uh, a sort of, um, uh, you know, th petty thief and criminal whose name was Hamidi Koulibaly, but who had no interest for Islam, except that he was born in a Malian Muslim family. They were not practicing. practicing. And another guy who had been stopped on his way to the Iraqi Jihad at the time in 2005 by the name of Sherif Kwashi. And the two were put in the same cell right below uh, Jamal Behal's show. So you had this pro pro chief proselytizer who could, um, you know, brainwash uh, the the two the two little guys in the in the floor below? And they then went on to be the perpetrators of, of the Charlie, in of the Charlie Hebdo and hyper kosher attacks. So you have here you have you know a, a sort of a, 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 a ideal type of the phenomenon, and this is how it came. So, to go back to your question in a wider way, I believe that we should w uh, walk on two legs in this issue, i.e. 
uh, I'm a man who's done uh, a lot of field work and uh, you know I went to the recently uh, to the French banlieues as you now say in English mm -hmm. and uh, in the north of Paris five years after the riots of 2005 spent a year there with a team of researchers we interviewed people at length and um, you know uh, we know what it is uh, deprivation and uh, disenfranchisement when you have 40 percent of the other youth there who just don't have a job so this leads to the fact that you do not identify with the values of the republic with laicité fraternité égalité and liberté because you have the know-hows you got at school are of no use to get a job so you just discard the values that are correlated with the know-how just you discard the, the baby with the baths dirty water right and uh, also another issue which is very important, I believe, which has to do also with the sort of our post-whatever civilization, post-modern or post-family or whatever, is the, is the fact that there is, a, you know, in many of those areas you have absentee fathers. The father has disappeared, either went back to North Africa or in the families of converts that you mentioned, you know, and sort of what we call in France vagabondage sexuel, so you know, it goes from one woman to another. The the mother of the kids um, is uh, uh, doesn't make much money. She has to live in the projects. In the projects, the majority of the population is now made out of kids from Muslim descent. Uh, Salafi groups have uh, uh, increased, and with that, this ideology, that, which is called in Arabic al wala wal baraa, i.e. Uh, um, allegiance only to the Salafi uh, scholars and disenfranchisement or disavowal, if you wish, of uh, whoever is considered a bad Muslim, an apostate or an, or an infidel. And uh, with that, the kids convert to Islam. And when the, the absent father is unable to, to transmit, if I may say so, the, the law or to transfer, you know, the law of society into the family, mm -hmm. There is an alternative law, the Sharia law, which is far more cogent, far more uh, um, sort of structured, which is uttered not by the fathers, but by, but by the peer group. In French, it's easier because it's père, P-E, accent grave, R-E, and père, P-A-I-R-S, the père au père, and so on. And this is Sharia, which uh, Sharia in its Salafi understanding, with all it prohibits and forbids, and which is perceived as a sort of bulwark against anomie. Okay, so these are two dimensions. And then you have to understand the ideology. If you shun the ideology, if you believe like uh, Oli Roy or Olivier Roy, that, you know, this has no importance, it's just superstructural, that they had the Haute Armée Fraction and the Brigade Rosse 20 years back. Now it's uh, Green Brigades and tomorrow it's going to be Blue Brigades. It's only an issue of frustration and right of passage, and then you get you just get these the Islamist toolbox after the uh, the Marxist toolbox or the nationalist toolbox. Well, comparison is okay, but you cannot compare if you do not understand the essence of the ideology, and if you do not read Arabic, for instance, if you cannot understand what's the background of the of this ideology, I believe that you cannot really understand what happens in French banlieues, and the same here. If you don't have Urdu or languages of the subcontinent, if you do not understand the relation between Manchester, Birmingham, on the one hand, and Lahore or uh, Raywind or what have you, uh, it, it you miss a huge amount of things. The same goes for Germany, 
where you know not only with Turkey of essence, but now with a huge refugee problem in in Germany, uh, and I'm going to Berlin in a few days. Uh, th this is. Uh, this is a major issue because uh, German intelligence, for instance, is nowadays is not up to par with this uh, with this new phenomenon. So you spoke about walking on two legs. In terms of the best way to push back against this wave of terrorism, does that mean that we have to work both to, to deal with the, the kind of social and political exclusion and also perhaps to, to put out an alternative narrative um, on the ideological front, or you know, is that uh, do you see more one or the other as the most effective response? Well, b both have to to be implemented simultaneously, and this is the this is the catch twenty two of the thing. You know, in in America, for instance, under Obama, it was only CVE, i.e., countering violent extremism. Obama would never utter the word jihadism because he was hostile to any ideology issue. Uh, now Donald Trump has uh, gone the other way around, but he may go anywhere because we are, we are not really sure what he understands. But uh, uh, I believe the two have to be implemented simultaneously and the diagnosis has to be made well. And this is, uh, so I hope, that what Emmanuel Macron wants to do, you know, with his new uh, sort of um, CT task force, uh, which is directly under his supervision at the Elysee Palace, or as I've been away from France for the last uh, two, three weeks since he was elected, so it means I have no political ambition pushing the book in English. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but from his campaign promises and what uh, conversation I had with him previously, I believe that for him this issue of uh, fight countering terrorism is not only a security issue, it was also something, terrorism is a sort of of metonymy of the ailments of, of our society, postmodern or post-industrial societies in Europe. It has to do with the fact that it's not uh, a left-right divide anymore, but more a divide between the ones who are in and the ones who are out, between the haves and the have-nots. In the banlieues, it's not an issue of being exploited. Those kids are not exploited. No one wants to exploit them except the, the, the drug lords, right? Mm. So uh, it is an issue of education. So in a way, it's a, if you wish, it's a way to look at society through the prism of terrorism, which is not perceived only as a phenomenon per se, but as a, as a byproduct of a society which has problems. And through terrorism, you look at society, and I hope that this will help us do the job, but we have to, to, to significantly work on the diagnosis dimension. And, uh, you know, as long as politics uh, shun and despise academics, we're still a long way uh, to it. Can I just ask you one quick final question? Um, where do you think we are in this wave of, of terrorism? I mean, we see the, the decline of the Islamic State territory. Um, do you think that that means that perhaps the appeal of this kind of jihadist narrative will begin to decline, or do you see it still as a very potent force in Western societies? Well, we have to be very careful about that. But uh, in the French case, which sort of exacerbated this phenomenon with 239 dead, we see, maybe it's just for the moment, but a sort of jihad fatigue, if I may say so. Uh, not only you know, the, the guy who, uh, who sentenced me and a number of colleagues to death, Rashid Qasem, aired his will after he became a martyr. So it was, you know, the sort of usual will, so glad to be in paradise with 72 virgins forever and poor man, and, uh, and 70 tickets for his family to go to paradise. But he also said, you know, the Islamic State is not doing the job. 
it doesn't work because the leaders uh, are behind, they're in the rear, they're not on the front line, and the allotment of resources is a catastrophe. And uh, you know, brothers, this is a harsh time, we're under duress. And when you watch uh, what uh, you know the, uh, they say in the chat rooms and the francophone jihad, this is more like that. It's more like uh, you know when you get to Islamic thinking, uh, there is a difference between what they call the phase of weakness, marhalat al-istidaf, and the phase of strength, marhalat al-temkin. Like when the Prophet and his followers were weak in Mecca, they did not engage into fighting because they would have been crushed, and they fled to Medina. And when they were strong, they went back from Medina and conquered Mecca. Now, they were in Temkin, they were in the phase of strength, you know, when they said that uh, in Dabik and their glossy magazines that, you know, in a few months, we're going to sell your women and children in the markets of the Islamic State in Paris or London. None of this gibbering anymore. It's sort of, you know, brothers and sisters, we have to deepen our knowledge of the scriptures. We have to sort of... Uh, uh, restructure our understanding of the phenomenon because the, the West is plotting and is mighty and so on. And therefore I believe that they're, they're sort of looking for, for a model which will be more adjusted to their means and uh, that even though they still have sympathizers, their, uh, their will to recruit on a larger level has not, uh, has not worked. Thank you. We're, there's a really a fascinating uh, overview and analysis. Um, there's more to discuss, and you know perhaps we'll have the opportunity to talk again. Um, traditionally, at the end of our um, podcasts, we discuss books that we've been reading. I mean, obviously, the main book to mention this week is is your own book, Terror in France: The Rise of Jihad in the West, which gives this you know at once very detailed but also um, you know, a broad context for the rise of this, as you describe it, third generation of jihadism, and it's a really a fascinating read. But is there anything that you would like to, to mention that you've been reading on either on this or some other subject? Well, it so happens that I'm currently reading a book which I like a lot, and it's in English, so your, your uh, listeners would, might be interested by um, uh, someone who's an English MP named Rory Stewart, The Marches, and Rory was well known for people like you and me because, you know, he was in Afghanistan, he was in Iraq, and then he came back and became the MP for uh, Penrith and uh, in Cumbria. And this is a fascinating book because it's the story of his uh, marches. He, he marches with his father on the marches on, the, on Hadrian's Wall between England and Scotland. His father is a Scot. And uh, this is taking place at the time of Brexit, i.e. when, uh, when Scotland may uh, get out of the, of the British system. Uh, the father was a former colonial officer in the in the British Empire, and as we know, the Scots were the backbone of the bureaucracy of the empire, like the Corsicans, to some extent, were in the French Empire. And uh, so he sort of revisits the British Empire and its legacy on Britain today. By the same token, as you know, he re he he marches on the on the forts of the of the of the Hadrian's Wall, and so it goes through the excavations where the guys came from. And those Romans who were sent there to pacify, quote-unquote, the, the Britons and the Scots, came from Dacia, came from Tigris, from um, what is now Baghdad, came from Palmyra. So it's a very astute way of uh, sort of uh, using fiction to make us think about the, uh, what is at stake today. And I liked it immensely, And I, even though I'm not an Anglophone, so I'm not one to 
to appreciate fully uh, the uh, the style. I mean, I, I I really enjoy very much reading it. So I would recommend to your readers that when they finish reading uh, Terror in France, they just uh, buy uh, or they buy the, the two books on, on on Amazon anywhere else simultaneously. Very good. Well, and thank hello, you. And hello to thank Rory Stewart thank if he listens to us. <laughs> thank you very and much. Congratulations. And Rory is, uh, in fact, one of ECFR's council members, so we are very delighted to have that, uh, that recommendation. Well, that uh, brings our discussion to an end. Um, Professor Capel, thank you very much indeed for this really fascinating um, analysis of uh, this urgent contemporary phenomenon. Our podcast next week, I presume uh, Mark Leonard will be back in the seat. Back from Stanford. Back from the with, a, with, a dr- with a drone, be careful. <laughs> so there we go. Um, from Gilles Capel and myself, it's thank you for now. Um, the researcher for our podcast is Ulrika Franke, the editor Pauline Gomen. Goodbye.